Hi, Greg Perry here, the historic preservationist. Continuing with the Black Plague, the numbers are finally decreasing around us. Toward the end of November, the painfully slow revival of London began. Cases of plague were still reported, mostly in the slums, though, on the fringe of the city. But its malignancy had largely disappeared. And Dr. Hodges was able to report when he called a new dawn of health has arisen. Although December, the numbers in the mortality bills fluctuated, now causing fears that the plague was returning, but the hopes were now receding finally. Encouraged by the mortality bill in the late week of November, which listed only 544 deaths, of which 333 were admitted to the plague, Pepe's and his wife paid a fleeting visit to their little house in the naval office. Coming home from work on December 4th, the diarist wrote, It was a joyful thing for us to meet here, for which God be praised. Pepe's was anxious to return permanently, for he was reluctant to continue the expense of temporary lodgings elsewhere. But only a week later, he was questioning whether it should be advisable or not. <clears throat> Still, in the bill for the first week of December, the numbers of deaths declined to 428, of which 210 were due to the plague. The next week's bill listed only 58 deaths for the city, out of the total of all 442 in London, 243 from the plague. In the third week of December, 525 day, 281 from the plague. Christmas week brought more cheering news with the holidays. With the lowest bill since the onset of the plague, of the 350 who died in the city, only 102 were attributed to the plague cases. The bill was not published until December 27th, and so Christmas came and went with little attempt to make it a less festive occasion, which it was really not. Church bells were silent, though, and only a few Christmas services were held in the city's 109 churches. For many clergymen still had not returned to London, in the fashionable areas, such as Convent Garden and Westminster, the great houses stood shuttered and completely empty, except for a few servants in their rooms on the higher up under the eaves. Funerals were still the most common sight in the streets, with beggars running them a close second. Forges and manufacturing were empty and boarded up. Their workers had no means of making any money apart from begging at street corners or stealing from deserted houses and most of the fittings and furniture they contained had been stolen long ago and burned for firewood. The emphasis on death, and I might add, this is why we don't have a lot of furniture pre-1700 or case clocks, in addition to the Great London Fire. The emphasis on death and funerals had been so great for so long that Pepe's attending church on Christmas morning was amazed to see a wedding in progress there. He made a special note of this in his diary, for it was something... I have not seen for many a day ago. A few shops opened briefly on Christmas, but the removal of their dusty shutters for the resumption of business was one of the first signs that life was finally beginning to return to the capital. Passing by an oyster shop on Greenwich Street, which had been patronized before the plague, Pepe's was delighted to find it open and apparently well-stocked with, with heavy oysters. He bought two barrels of oysters, his appetite was not increased 
when he heard that they came from Colchester, famous even then for its natives, where the plague was said to have been depopulating the town down to 20%. Despite this, he found the oysters very good, and he could not resist. By the end of the year, many of the houses of the poor districts began to be opened up. As more and more of London's refugee citizens returned, they made little attempt to air or disinfect their their houses. Hodges was disgusted that so many would enter houses and rooms where infected persons had but a little before breathed their last breath. In their tiredness, they even slept in beds where persons have died and putrefied, and which had not yet been cleaned or from the stench of the deceased. The talk in the streets and the few reopened shops was anxious inquiry into, into the whether friends or relatives survived at all. Possibly only one in 50 Londoners could read or write at this time and place. And so the poor relied almost exclusively on only word of mouth. Had this cousin had this cousin been seen in Chelmsford was one of the questions asked. Did that man who might be Uncle Samuel really have a deformed hand by which he could be recognized? We cannot find him. It was a slow, unsatisfactory business trying to trace people who were probably dead, for even if they were ill and still could not have left London or even been impressed into the Navy or to fight the Dutch. This just brings... Uh, more memories back, I think, of 9-11, people looking for people. Although the cold weather, the stench of death and decomposition still lingered on, rising in foul, seeping waves from burial grounds, which contained hundreds of corpses. It just the, the, the essence of the putrefaction just seemed to filter up through the dirt, even in the colder weather. All further burials in the city churchyards were expressively forbidden, in case of opening plague-ridden graves that might bring about a new onslaught of the disease. Even so, the rank smell of putrefaction soured the air and made it impossible for people to move back into houses that stood near churchyards. Hundreds of people appealed to the city corporation and to justices of the peace for something to be done about the constant smell. Pepe's who attended St. Olive's Church in January for a service in commemoration of the execution of King Charles I, was horrified as he walked through the, the churchyard. This is the first time I have been in a church since I left London for the result of the plague, he wrote. And it frightened me, as I thought it would have done, to see so many graves lie so high upon the, the level of the ground in the churchyard, where people have been buried of the plague. I was so much troubled and do not think to go through it again for a good while. All over the city, people were solicitous to have their churchyards covered with lime as a possible means of cleansing them. Albemarle and Craven proposed that every burial place should be covered with at least a 12-inch layer of unslaked lime and then a familiar and similar covering of fresh earth. But I must add that unslaked lime is, is lime that when mixed with water, forms a hard crust, and that's what plasters have used the last 500 years in the world, and uh, traditional 18th and 17th century plaster. So if they put a level, level of uh, 12 inches of lime, once it rained, you would have a cement coating, literally a lime, solid lime coating that you would never get to the graves again for many years. But 
it was good for them. <clears throat> but to do this would have required thousands of tons of lime, which it would take weeks to dig out of the chalk chalk pits in Kent impossible to execute for it have to be it would have to be hydrated and then moved to the sites. This was impossible. The graves remained as they were until gradually the corpses rotted away and the mounds fell in the ground too and the smell disappeared and so did the depressions or it created depressions in the ground now. Returning to his home in Acton at this time, Richard Baxter, the Puritan divine, found his church's yard like a plowed field with graves and many of my neighbors dead. Craven suggested to the magistrates at Westminster that they should order the bedding to be taken out of the infected houses and aired of every house in London remaining. And then all such rooms should be given at least one coat of lime whitewash to purify them, to lock in any of the deadly virus. But who would be doing this? That's the question. To encourage people to keep their homes clean, daily collections of refuge were instituted. The dead carts were now transformed into refuge carts, and the handbells which had rung for bodies were now sounded to warn the people to sweep their garbage into the streets. The bearers of the dead were still hard at work. They became rakers who piled refuge into the carts and dumped it into the lay stalls outside the city walls, some distance from the houses. Those who still caught the plague were kept under close guard in their homes for 40 days quarantine and parish constables were given strict orders to clear all venomous beggars from the street corners. These measures, which might have, have been well instituted earlier, had there been people capable of implementing it. Sounds like our country today, right? We, can, we don't have the proper authorities in high up places to implement the right decisions. We don't have delegators in this country. Maybe that's a term that they don't understand, a fifth grade term, a delegator. And this would have helped to reduce the death rate in, new, in the new year. During January, 253 people died in London, and of those, only 70 were from the plague. It was the first time that fewer than 100 people had died from the plague in a single week in over a year. And with only 31 parishes infected, the danger had almost gone. Pepe's returned to his house in seething lane, but caution continued to be his watchword. Home to my wife, he wrote, and angry about her desiring a maid yet. Before the plague is quite over, I will not venture my family by increasing it before it is safe. Throughout the year, Albemarle and, and at the cockpit had struggled through a mass of complicated paperwork, while politicians and public health officials were miles away in their country estates just living life to the fullest almost like a country club scene. Dr. Grumble, whose faithful friendship did so much to, to sustain him, declared that Abermarie was always loaded with business. In the absence of the king, he was at constant correspondence with Clarendon, Lord, the Lord Chancellor, with secretaries of state and others. In addition to his own duties as commander-in-chief of the army, he took over much of the responsibility of the fleet acting as a liaison between its commanders, the officers of ordnance, and the Navy commissioners. Beside all this, Albert-Marie directed the administration of the part of the capital which lay outside the city walls, giving advice to the magistrates 
and deputy lieutenants of Middlesex and Southwark, arranging for essential supplies to start being brought back into the city and endeavoring to organize some relief for the poor. Although the city itself was largely administered by the Lord Mayor, he invariably consulted Almery before constituating and implementing anything into that city of importance. The Navy office had been moved out to Greenwich in view of the Dutch War, for it was imperative that it should continue to operate on the near, on as nearly a normal scale as possible. Much of, much of uh, the city had been evacuated in the beginning, but not far from Epson and Surrey, the Michael Amos law firm had held, had held its, its law dealings in Oxford. The exchange had either been closed or virtually deserted. Similarly, all of the merchandising and manufacturing centers in the city had been empty and forsaken, except for a few clerks and servants left behind to guard their master's property. The imposing premises of the financial houses had presented forlorn and shuttered frontages to be a deserted Lombard Street, overgrown with weeds and dandelions. Thus, national and local administration had fallen gravely into neglect, and and in an economy where the men were divided into three groups, those who worked, those who prayed, (laughs) and those who fought, the breakdown of commerce, finance, and trade had been reflected in widespread poverty all over London. So I guess the workers helped everything, and the the financiers were brought back, but I don't think quite the men who prayed helped the uh, London plague for that year, do you? out there in uh, podcast land, but uh, interesting, very interesting stuff. And that always brings back these uh, individuals in our south portion of our country that refused to close our churches and people like Franklin Graham, who refused to close his university until about a week ago and all the infected students. So I guess God didn't protect them, did he? On January 5th, the king, still in Oxford, ordered the, uh, the return to Westminster and to reopen there on the 20th of the month. A week later, on the advice of the Privy Council, he ordered that the next legal term should be held at Windsor Castle, so as to avoid too precipitate a return to London. Nevertheless, Windsor was on the the way out of town. This was an encouraging sign. The lawyers were especially pleased. They had endured a miserable time during the inns of the court. At At the Michael Amos law firm in Oxford, most of the jury cases were postponed, except for those which the king had some interest in. And no chancery business was taken. The lawyers, who were not admitted to the university city unless they could produce certificates of health, had been, according to a Frenchman, Denis de Repas, the jest of the court and the hate of all the people. These were the lawyers, such as today, probably, right? In a letter to a friend who declared that Oxford was full of lawyers, whose clothes were as much out of date as their speech typically is, which none can understand, but they only ask for their fees without doing any work, he added. They generally curse this town by reason they cannot get any lodging in. They they did lay 60 last night in a barn full of hay and not for any future logins. In November, the public intelligentsia had ceased publication because things had gotten so bad in the city and had been replaced by the Oxford Gazette, which would have been 40 miles outside of town, of which Henry Muddleman was the editor. On January 15th, 
the Gazette reported that the king hoped with some impatience that further decline of the pestilence would permit his return to London, which he had a very lodging desire to do. King Charles II was a prudent, cautious man, however, and his desire to be back in his palace at Whitehall did not exceed his desire to remain alive and healthy. He was, in fact, troubled by reports that plague deaths had suddenly and inexplicably increased to 158 in the second week of January. Pepe's, who had helped to reopen the Navy office six days before, shared this alarm. On January 13th, when he went out to dinner at Covenant Garden with Lord Brockner and his mistress, Mrs. Williams, he recorded that the occasion was pretty merry, though not perfectly so, because of their fear there was a great deal of of increase again of the plague this week on their mind. When he heard the totals of the next bill, he was mightily troubled at the news. Much the saddest news of the plague hath brought for me from the beginning of it, because of the lateness of the year and the fear that we may, with reason, have it of coming with us in the summer. It was remarkable, he wrote three days later, how indefinitely naked we feel. Covenant Garden and the fashionable districts of the west of the city were in comparison with the city itself, which was almost as full as people as it ever was, as I can remember. The next bill was more reassuring, though. Plague deaths were only 79, and the king, who received an urgent appeal from Almarie to meet him, decided to risk the journey to Hampton Court. He arrived with the Duke of York and some of his chief ministers on January 22nd, thereof after Almarie would visit Charles daily, driving out each morning in his huge carriage, returning each night to London when the day's business was complete. In the last week of the month, when snow lay thickly over London and the surrounding countryside, only 56 people died from plague. Of these, only two were from Westminster. The Gazette thus reported that the king had determined for the encouragement of his city of London as for the better convenience of his great and wealthy affairs of state to return to Westminster. After making this historic announcement, the Oxford Gazette became the London Gazette, which has continued as the organ of royal and official news ever since to this day in 2020. On February 1st, King Charles traveled back by coach to St. James Palace. Despite the snow and icy weather, thousands lined the route to cheer his progress. The bells of the churches sounded peal after peal and bonfires like those which burned in an attempt to drive away the pestilence in September blazed once again in the London streets that evening. The mass reaction was one of relief, and tinged with hope relief of the plague was now officially over. Hope for a new return to prosperity we had seen in our past. But hopes were borne out. As the flight of king and court had precipitated the mass evacuation of London by its wealthy citizens, so the king's return encouraged thousands to return after him. Clarendon said that for a few weeks after his return to Westminster, the only coaches on the streets belonged to the royal household. So much were all the men terrified from returning to a place where so much mortality had occurred. But directly, the news was known throughout the countryside that the king was back in Whitehall. 
The streets were soon crowded with the returning coaches of great families and the carts piled high with their mass belongings. The queen drove to Sidon House where Charles collected her and together they sailed majestically up the Thames to Westminster on the royal barge. Such a royal entry, an entry of power. The judges adorned their courts at Westminster and within, within days they were sitting at Westminster Hall. Despite this, Parliament was twice more pro, prolonged until finally in September 1666 and there is the dedication that the MPs were anything but grateful for being thus excused attendance in London. But if they were, were timid, others were less so. Before the end of March, wrote Clarendon, the streets were as full, the exchange as much crowded, the people in all places as numerous as they had ever been seen before. Few, few persons missing that any of us knew, any of their acquaintances. The, the persons to whom their chancellor referred, of course, had not been in London during the plague, but on their country estates many miles away. Some of the rich prodigals did not escape the scorn of those who stayed behind. Pepe's, although he had retreated far away as Woolwich, certainly had little sympathy for them. At the first assembly of Gresham College since the plague arose, Pepe's wrote that Dr. Jonathan Goddard, the professor in physic, did fill us with a great talk. In defense of his and his and his fellow physicians going out in the town in the plague time, saying that their particular patients were almost gone out of town, and they left out of a more of a sense of liberty and a great deal more. My wife and I first the first time together in the church since the plague, he he wrote to her later, and now only because of Mr. Mills, his coming home to preach his first sermon, expecting a great excuse for leaving the parish before anybody went, and now staying until all come home. But he made but a very poor and short excuse and a bad, bad sermon at that. Which, with frost and snow now covering the graves in St. Olive's graveyard, Pepe's was not so afraid of venturing through it, and he had seen it for days before. And a week later, when Sir Thomas Harvey attending a meeting at the Navy office, having been out of London throughout the plague, Pepe's noted with satisfaction, he was coldly received by all of us and went away before we rose also to make himself appear a man less necessary. Despite the outward appearance of normality, even a small increase in the number of plague deaths published in the bills caused a wave of gloom and sweep over London. In April and May, these figures rose again in between 40 and 60, largely because of outbreaks in Lambeth, Deptford, and other out parishes, which suffered most as the tide of plague receded from the center of the city. The spring was again very hot, and the Black Death continued to harass many towns outside the capital. Colchester, with about 5,000 deaths, lost most of its inhabitants totally. The rest fled and the town became virtually empty with only beggars walking around the deserted streets. More than a thousand pounds was collected by the London diocese for their relief. Along the Thames, too, the riverside towns of Deptford, Greenwich, Erith, and Chatham were all seriously affected 
and the Privy Council issued special plague instructions to their administrators to help one day return the towns back to population. After a sharp rise to 58 deaths in the second week of May, the bills for the City of London dropped to between 20 and 30 cases per week, and all but one or two of these were in the outparishes. The summer came without the epidemic, which many people had secretly expected and dreaded, and the news of a single infected house became a topic of interest and surprise. Many new plague regulations came into force in May 1666, after the need for them had passed, but they were in any case but, but of little value. The Privy Council ordered new pest houses to be built in every major city and town, but few were actually constructed, for the civic authorities concerned had other plans for their money. All householders in time of future plague would keep shut up all windows openings toward infected houses. Fires in movable pans or otherwise were to be made in all necessary public meetings in churches, etc. And the convenient fumes to collect the air to be burnt therein. And local authorities were ordered to ensure that no swine, dogs, or cats, or tame pigeons to be permitted to pass up or down any of the streets or from house to house or places that were previously infected. The toll of the Great Plague in London had made 1665 the most disastrous year in the history of the capital. In the bills alone, 97,306 deaths were recorded in 1665, 68,590 of them from the plague. Of these, 15,200 took place within the 446 acres covered by the city. And there were figures are only fractions of the real totals. Despite the number of deaths and the gloom of the city, this terrible summer was soon forgotten. The remarkable resilience of the human mind was shown by the fact that people had the courage to marry again and betake to the means by repairing the past mortality and even women before deemed barren were said to prove prolific. According to one estimate, the loss of nearly 100,000 people was hardly noticeable after a few months. John Grant, in his observations on the bills of mortality, was also sanguine on the subject, calculating that all those who died would be replaced in about two to two and a half years. He explained away the lower birth rate in London than elsewhere in the fact that many of its courtiers and wealthy classes kept their families in the country, while others sent their wives to the country for confinement. Although only 9,967 babies were christened in London during the plague year, scarcely half the people, he believed, saw any need to have their children christened. And since no other registration or births existed, this was clearly a most conservative estimate on the births in the city at that time. London remained the goal of people who wanted to grow rich and successful. There was no shortage of replacements for those who had perished. Their jobs were eagerly taken up by new immigrants, and the city soon recovered its usual bustle. And I guess that goes back to Mr. Franklin's adage, anybody can be replaced by anybody. Dr. Gumbel saw all official reports that had flowed into Almarie throughout the plague year, and hazarded a guess at the total plague mortality in England. This judge me wrote 
The next year took its circuit and visited many great cities and taverns throughout our nation, so that 1665 and 1666 there died above 200,000 persons of men, women, and children of this pestilence, which was a visitation beyond the formerly formality of this nation. And I hope and pray that God will never let this happen again and that we nor our posterity after us may never feel such another judgment as this be. When the judgment passed, some of those who had tried so valiantly to cope with it found themselves probably to their surprise still alive. The Duke of Almeri was calmly holding on after such this great calamity which he had lived through. Both Monarch and his wife were unusually fond of money. He amassed an enormous fortune, and when he died five years after the plague, he left his eldest son property worth half a million pounds. Alain, who had also survived, left Southwark for Woodwich, which he still refused a physician's license but went on practicing without one. Not long after his arrival, he was again plunged into the thick of the plague. And once more, he did wonderful work and lived to remember these days as an honorable man. Boghurst and his large family continued to thrive. When the good apothecary died years afterward, he was buried at Ditton, his birthplace. The epitaph stated on his stone was, Honest and just, skilled in his profession and in the Greek and Latin languages, and a student of all antiquity. His most abiding memorial lies in the great and selfless work he did in the existence of this plague. The dedicated Mr. Hodges was among the most unfortunate of the survivors. Despite his heroic behavior, In the time of the plague, his story ended in personal tragedy. When he was in his early 50s, his practice suddenly began to dwindle and then fell away altogether. Finally, he was arrested as a debtor and committed to Ludgate Prison in London, where he died, a broken man, in 1668. It's hard to believe a a physician who helped so many people survive the plague, and he ends up a debtor in prison. During that year of the plague, the doctors of the Restoration found a sickness of which no one would know the origin. No one knew the origin. In these circumstances, even if they had not been burdened with medical superstitions, they could not have hoped to win this. The plague was a very old disease. Yet it was not until near the close of the close of the nineteenth century, more than two hundred years later, that its deadly bacillus was isolated and traced to rat fleas. So it takes 200 years after the plague to finally figure out that it was rat fleas. And think of all the 40,000 to 60,000 cats and dogs and pigeons they slaughtered, and it was the fleas. It was not the rats. The rats, the rats were the hosts. They were the, they were the meal, but it was the fleas. A Japanese doctor discovered the bacillus during a Hong Kong epidemic in 1894. And some years afterward, research in India which had frequently suffered the plague, revealed that it was a disease originating with rats, but which readily be passed on to human beings. In 17th century England, all the necessary evidence to connect the plague with the rat was available, but no one drew the right conclusion. 
The disease flourished in unsanitary conditions where rats abounded, and it was known that infected bedding or clothing seemed to harbor the pestilence. So all their beds were infected with the plague-ridden fleas in London. Yet the nearest doctors of the day came to isolating it was to announce that the plague must be a body or consecration of many little bodies or a subtle or something invisible, a secretion, um, a breathing containing a venom or contrary to destructive of the vital principles of the man's uh, actual heart beating itself. Some scientists of the time believed, as we have been shown, the plague was in the air. Others thought it was, its essence was lodged in the dirt and the earth, which they called the seminary and the seed plot of pestilence. And all through that long, hot, dry summer of 1665, rats ran free and multiplied alarmingly in such hot conditions in the slums of the stinking capital. And London was always a stinking capital, but exceptional because of the extreme heat way it exhibited for three months that summer. While the dogs and cats that could be thinned out, their numbers were ruthlessly exterminated. It has been said that the plague was first brought to England by rats, which swarmed down the mooring lines of foreign ships in English ports. Especially... London and Portsmouth that may have not been so, it is certainly quite feasible. The plague had thrived all over the world in the same filthy conditions which characterized 17th century London, and England had also suffered from it for many centuries. The black rat, common in the middle and in the far east, was also the species most frequently found in England. And at time... It was the most domestic of all vermin. In the East, it had been long been remarked that when the rats began to die, the human plague was never far off. Hindu scriptures even advised men to leave their homes when they saw such signs. The virulence of plague in London was due to the rapid manipulation of the bacilli passed through flea bites into the human body. The flea was the sole carrier of of bubonic pestilence, leaving dead rats to continue its parasitic life upon the human body as prey. Outbreaks of plague, plague, some slight, other severe, continued in many other parts of the world into the 20th century, particularly in, in Egypt and in the Far East. But the Great Plague of 1665 was the last time the pestilence would visit England in epidemic proportions until now, which is another type of plague. In the light of the country's backward state of medical knowledge for the next 200 years, this was more than fortunate. It was provincial.